Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show, Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful hour. Dr. Josh Mulvihill is going to be joining me in just a little bit. And Allie Beth Stuckey is going to be on the program as well. So that's the hour. And it's been a, a lot of fun having David Miles in studio as we wrapped up another episode of the Monday afternoon mix. I always learn a lot. I'm going to be going back to Romans 12 today to go and read that again. It's a powerful passage, a powerful chapter. If you're Enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a great passage. What a great verse and great chapter. Romans chapter 12. So my guest, Dr. Josh Mulvihill, um, is a Ph.D. in family ministry from the Southern Baptist Theological Sem. He's authored several books. The one that he... uh, most recently came out with is called Biblical Worldview, what it is, why it matters, and how to shape the worldview of the next generation. Josh, welcome. Good day, Bill. Happy snowy day, should I say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So do you want to know how you came on the program today? Yeah. Okay. I had uh, Mark Muska in last week. Oh, I love Mark. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? And he sees your book, and he starts fussing over you like I've never seen anyone fuss. Oh, that's funny. That's, yeah. Well, Mark uh, was my professor at Northwestern, and I learned a lot from him. So uh, we'll just say Mark's fingerprints are over all over some of these books. Yeah, Mark is truly um, a, a great thinker and a great man of faith, and I, I learn so much from Mark every time he comes on the show. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he, he couldn't have said nicer things about you, and I uh, remembered having you on the program before and thought, it's time to have Josh back for sure. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks. Now, I know you talk about a number of things, biblical worldview for sure, but you also talk about grandparenting. Um, and I'm just kind of curious if we can talk a little bit about grandparenting uh, during this COVID, uh, this COVID pandemic. Yeah, it's uh, just kind of crazy, huh? How do we all navigate all these family gatherings with uh, all the challenges we're facing? Yeah, and the stakes are high, and we don't want anyone to get sick, and yet the, there's so many grandparents that feel so incredibly isolated, and it's mm-hmm. just torture that they can't hug and see their grandkids. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, well, I'll share a little about what we've done, and of course, there's much um, flexibility because there's a big spectrum for all families, so this this is more, I'd say, think of a guidebook rather than a cookbook as okay. far as some of the suggestions. So guidebook, you know, kind of, you take your path a little different sometimes, but uh, I think for us, it's, it started with a simple question for our kids' grandparents. It's my dad and uh, stepmom just simply was, what are you guys comfortable with? And uh, my stepmom, Pam, had, uh, is a cancer survivor, so she has a level of concern, uh, rightfully so, that uh, she doesn't want to get COVID. And uh, so we've needed to uh, be mindful of that and uh, take precaution. And uh, as a result, we have put some 
um, practices in place and some limitations in place to protect Pam's health. And that's been hard at times, but it's been good. So for our family, that simply meant um, at the beginning, you know, we didn't, none of us knew what we were dealing with with COVID. And we took, you know, we took it very seriously and we still do. Um, but for us, uh, Pam really didn't go out other than to get food um, for the first couple months. And so we decided that we were going to go to her once a week and she was comfortable with that if we didn't bring our kids. And we actually set up shop at her home um, for half a day to a day each week and just spent time with her. I did my, you know, I, we were working remote, so I did some remote work from her place. And I'll tell you what, um, we did not know how how much we missed just human interaction until <laughs> we started that. And man, we need others, don't we? That oh, was the boy. first thing that just landed. And that ended up becoming, we did that for two months on a weekly basis. That's kind of how, our, that's what it looked like for us. Um, and it became the highlight of our week. And uh, many times there would be tears. I mean, it was like our only, we, Jen and I didn't go out much either just because we weren't sure um, how serious this was. And so that was like, that was it. That was our only human interaction. And, um, and it was good. And as things progressed, um, you know, we got a little more comfortable being around one another just from a safety standpoint. And so uh, I remember Mother's Day, we went, all of us, um, I have three siblings and we, there's about 15 grandkids. So we all got together and surprised Pam for Mother's Day. So as grandmother and um, we had, we all stood in this big socially distanced <laughs> circle outside, mm -hmm. we sang to her, we gave her presents and we told all the kids, now don't pressure Grammy. We're going to give her distance. And it's so funny because we, we started out in this distant circle and uh, you could see it was like this gravitational pull as the kids wanted to hug Grammy, but we're sure. <laughs> One of the little ones finally bl blurted out, Grammy, can I hug you? And it was like the bur the dam burst, and they all rushed and hugged Grammy. And um, and that was uh, that was very special. Um, so we've our family gatherings since then have um, we've had a handful of um, all family gatherings, and um, we've had them outside. Um, that's just been what's worked for our family. It'll be interesting. I'm, I'm talking to you right now, watching the snow fall out my window. Um, you know, we won't be able to do that for much longer. And so we're navigating as a family, what does Thanksgiving look like? Um, or, you know, as children, we're comfortable getting together and interacting. And, um, you know, the, you know, our, we feel like the science shows that it's pretty safe, um, but we want to be mindful of uh, Pam and Dad. So that was just the question of what are you comfortable with? I think for all of us, it there's a level of grace that's needed with our family. Um, we've all chosen not to be fearful, but we've also chosen to be gracious for those that have a medical concern. And I think that that is a reality that we all need to you know, just be gracious about. Um, so that leads to the second piece is uh, we, you know, we live in an era where we have technology available to us. And I think the the piece for us, both as adult children and as grandparents, there's two words that I think are helpful. It's intentionality and it's technology. And we just need to be intentional to use it. It is, uh, you know, it's available to us. And so, you know, research shows really the, the quality of a grandparent um, a child, grandchild relationship is really based on the frequency of interaction. 
And so limited interaction just results in limited impact and more interaction results obviously in a stronger relationship. It's a two-sided coin, obviously. Um, so I think for listeners, my um, it, it goes both ways. Um, but my question for um, grandparents, those that have the ability to interact and are willing to do so, um, I'm going to ask just a simple question, it just, it just which are you? I'm going to read three categories. So there were there are three re, two researchers that researched the amount of time that grandparents spend with grandchildren, uh, and they found that there are three categories of relational involvement. Um, so the first is detached, and they often um, urge their children to be self-sufficient, and they kind of create some emotional distance, resulting in grandparents kind of being farther remote from the family. Uh, the second is passive, which is 29% of grandparents. And um, these kind of grandparents are careful to keep a distance and not press for extra time. They don't want to be a burden. They really like being grandparents, but they sometimes feel um, a little ambivalent in, in that relationship. So research shows that those grandparents, detached and passive, spend about once or twice a month with family. The last category is active grandparents, and they tend to spend about uh, once or twice a week interacting with their grandchildren. So this could be in person, this could be over the phone, it could be video calls. Um, and I'll just uh, summarize that by saying, um, Children and grandchildren spell love, T-I-M-E, and so um, there just needs to be time. Now, on the flip side of that coin, uh, the biggest lament that I hear from grandparents related to interaction with adult children and grandchildren is, um, I just, I want to, I do want to interact more. I want to have those phone calls. I want to have those conversations, and I grieve that they're not happening as as often as I would like. And so I think that, you know, that's a big piece of it. We've got the technology available to us and it's a matter of saying, I'm just going to prioritize using it. So none of us want to be in that uh, detached or passive category, but it is the case for about 50% of us with our, you know, parent grandparent uh, relationships. And so, you know, maybe it's just a good reminder to say, you know, I just need to pick up the phone more. I need to, uh, send that text message. Uh, my kids got super excited during COVID about snail mail. I mean, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen them much more excited besides Christmas morning. Like <laughs> they lit literally would race out to the mailbox and our, you know, our um, grandparents would send um, a sticker club and our daughters got, we have two daughters, they got really excited just to get stickers and send them back and forth. And our sons got pretty excited about sending football cards by the mm. mail. And they would write, you know, both would write notes with them back and forth. And that happened for months. And it was uh, just another form of communication here that was pretty significant. Um, so, you know, so, you know, those have been two, a couple of biggies on our side. Um, I don't want to dominate the conversation too much here, Bill. I've got some ideas if you'd like me to share some. Well, I do, for I do for sure. And you've been very gracious with me because it's your fault for being so prolific because I'm not even talking about your most current book, which is Discipling Your Grandchildren, Great Ideas to Help Them Know, Love, and Serve God. 
So you've been nice to me by not saying, hey, let's talk about my most current book. So let me take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, pick up on that. Uh, Dr. Josh Mulvihill is my guest, and his newest book is Discipling Your Grandchildren. Great ideas to help them know, love, and serve God. Be right back. Back with Dr. Josh Mulvihill, executive director of the Church and Family Ministry at Renew a Nation, where he equips parents and grandparents to disciple their families and consults with church leaders to help them design Bible-based, Christ-centered children's, youth, and family ministries. Josh, uh, congratulations on your latest book, Discipling Your Grand- Your Grandchildren. Nice work. Thank you. Yeah, so, it's been fun to see God using it. Yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna give us some some insights, which I was uh, excited to hear. Yeah, so we all want the practicalities of how do we, you know, how do we engage spiritually with our family. Um, So this latest book really is taking Deuteronomy 6 and applying it to grandparents. And so what we found nationally is grandparents have a huge desire to make a big impact in the life of their family, uh, but oftentimes that desire doesn't translate into, uh, you know, just a practical reality. And so many uh, many struggle with that. So we just uh, put down a couple hundred ideas that grandparents could utilize in all facets of life and um, and thought we could share a couple that would be maybe helpful for grandparents today. That'd be wonderful. Uh, yeah. So um, we break them down into eight different categories in the book that are what we understand to be some of the key methods that the Bible provides. So when we talk about grandparenting, um, God designed grandparenting, so he gets to tell us uh, not only what we're aiming for, but how to go about it. And, that, and when I look at Scripture, I simply summarize what God wants for grandparents by saying um, being disciple makers, and it's really the same goal as parents. We're aiming to see our children, grandchildren know, love, and serve Christ. And of course, we want that to be the focus of what we're doing with them. Not that we can't do some other things, but that's the goal. Um, So some of the practicalities, um, I think for grandparents, we've got two categories, some that live close and some that live far. And those that are long-distance grandparenting, which I guess many are right now in COVID, even if you live close by, um, the whole um, there's some really fun things that you can do with your grandkids to develop relationships that give you the opportunity to um, have an opportunity to share Christ and build into them. Um, we are, for example, our grandparents down the road here, um, they surprised our kids by ordering pizza and had it delivered. And then they sent in the mail um, some game boards. So they copied, for example, Yahtzee on their end and they, you know, made a paper copy of Yahtzee, put it in the mail, <laughs> pizza got delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they played um, they played Yahtzee over a video call while they ate p- pizza. And you would have thought it was like the biggest pizza party ever. That's uh, but so it, cute. But it was just, just a way to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other long-distance grandparenting ideas, and this is a good COVID idea, um, grandparents bought two copies of the book exploring the bible which is about it's 52 studies that walks kind of through the big picture of the bible and they've been working through one ch- 
chapter each week, a different section of Scripture. And so they get on a video call, and they just work through this little portion of Scripture. They talk about life, how can we pray for each other, you know, what's going on. And uh, it's a way for that that grandparent to invest in each of those grandchildren. Um, you know, we found we have five kids, and so sometimes it's hard for us to get over to Grammy and Grandpa's house. And so when grandparents are willing to travel to our house, um, that helps us out a ton sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can They can stay later. Our kids can get together with them. You know, our youngest is five, so we're still in the – you can't stay up till the wee hours of the middle of the night. Um, they can get their jammies, though, and have some fun with Grandma and Grandpa. Um, we've got the, the holidays coming up right around the corner, and – I think these are great opportunities for families. Um, There's a lot of, I call them grandparent replacements today, in that uh, restaurants replace meals at grandma and grandpa's house. And I don't know about you, but I remember the holiday season when we would walk in and you'd have the smells and the sounds and, you know, grandma's was a special place. And so I'd say you've got, um, you've got that opportunity coming up again and I'd utilize it grandparents. Uh, food is your secret weapon. And uh, <laughs> this is a great season to bring that out again. And, you know, obviously that depends partially on, on COVID. Um, but we have an entire section in that book on intentional use of meals, mm-hmm. um, just a bazillion ideas on uh, it's a missed opportunity for a lot of grandparents because of uh, the convenience um, of food and restaurants, but also the challenge sometimes of getting families together. Uh, but the holidays are coming up, so I'd say uh, leverage that. Um, one of our favorite ideas for grandparents is just speaking a blessing over your grandchildren. And again, you've got the holidays coming up. Um, literally just writing um, what you love about a grandchild, some of the special things that God has gifted that grandchild with, and how you can see God using those special gifts in the future. Um, and, uh, and spending some time, you know, half a page, a page of just um, heartfelt um, words to that grandchild and reading them or giving them a note to that grandchild, you know, gathering for the holidays here coming up, reading that over a grandchild. I have seen more tear-filled blessings read by grandparents to grandchildren that those grandchildren just cherish wow. those those uh, blessings. Um, so, you know, there's a, I could keep going with a ton of ideas like that, but I, you know, those are all, some of those are COVID friendly right now, mm-hmm. whether you do those from a distance or, or uh, invite them in. Um, you know, we love building great book library books or libraries of great books with our, um, with our family. And, um, you know, that's another COVID idea that can happen right now is the gift season is coming upon us and uh, give an opportunity to read those, discuss those together um, by, by technology, phone, mm-hmm. text. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, maybe you could uh, talk to grandparents about the importance of them as spiritual mentors. Maybe they, they don't know how much they matter because they do. And at what point yeah. do they start talking to their grandchildren about the gospel? Yes. So the role of a grandparent scripturally is to be a disciple maker. Research has found that grandparents are the number two role uh, influencer in a child's life, second only to parents, more influential than teachers, pastors, 
um, friends, and that simply is due to the amount of time that grandparents have with grandchildren over the course of a grandchild's life. You know, friends will come and go, teachers will come and go, churches will even often come and go, but grandparents are that one constant from birth later in life. Uh, grandparents often underestimate their impact, and it's significant. Uh, you ask, I mean, just think about your grandparents. They, more than likely, they had an influence in your life in some way, whether good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, what was your second question there? The uh, Oh, just how important it is uh, for grandparents to know how much they matter, and then when is a good time to start talking to their, your sure, grandkids right. about the gospel? Because sometimes if you, if you let it go too long, it gets harder and harder to bring it up. Yeah, you know, one of the shocking finds, I did my dissertation on Christian grandparenting, and uh, I interviewed grandparents all over the U.S., and one of the shocking things I found was that only 25% had ever ever in the life of the grandchild shared, verbally shared the gospel with the wow. grandchild. So um, it's not happening for a lot of grandparents. And that don't hear that as a shame-based statement. Maybe this is just a, a, a good encouragement that that needs to happen. Um, one of my friends, he uh, when he realized that, they bought a little book or a resource, and they as grandparents set it out on their coffee table. And when their grandchildren come over, they just naturally pick it up, and it has sparked conversations, the opportunity to share the gospel regularly with their grandchildren, just something as simple as that. But yes, um, I, I think it needs to happen early and often, and all of us benefit from hearing the gospel shared and re- reminded of the truths and the beauty of the gospel because we're always— uh, you know, there's always gospel replacements that are tugging at our heart. And so, uh, you know, the the tendency for some grandparents, when I asked them, why haven't you shared the gospel? It was, we didn't want to step on the toes of our you know, parents. And so if that's the case, have a conversation. Uh, as a parent, I just want my children to love Jesus. So if that comes through a grandparent or a Sunday school teacher, uh, or us, I'll be delighted in any way. And so, um, but grandparents do have a role in that as well. Mm-hmm. Just have about a minute left, so you're going to have to answer quickly. What about if there's a relationship that's strained? Uh, yes. So um, I think the the grace and truth um, principle of Scripture applies here. This mm-hmm. is where we lean grace more than truth-telling and uh, we want to be an influencer more than anything else. So um, I think the quick answer to this, God has a lot of prodigals. Follow God's lead with how he deals with the sinner in Scripture and apply those principles. Josh, that's such wisdom. Thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, this has really been really been a great half hour. I appreciate you very much. It's a joy to be here. And uh, we have a mutual affection for Mark Musco, so... I feel like I'm bonded to you in a weird way. That's great. <laughs> Have a great rest of the night. You too. Thanks, Phil. You bet. Dr. Josh Mulvihill has been my guest. Discipling Your Grandchildren is one of his most current books. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Allie Beth Stuckey will be with us. Hey, hey, get a regular... That was a great half hour with Dr. Josh Mulvihill on discipling your grandchildren, although he just offered all kinds of wisdom uh, from various uh, 
dimensions in, of grandparenting. And I also think that it's important uh, we get him back and, like, he's, you know, bring him back with a, a grandparent who's maybe gone through a stressful time in that situation because there's a lot of hurting people relative to their grandkids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's uh, it can be a challenging relationship if there's a strain there because there are certain boundaries. You know, you're not the parent, but you care and you love mm-hmm. and you want to be involved. And especially when it comes to spiritual things, that can be kind of awkward. Yeah. And I would love for the hurting uh, grandparents right now uh, to just be lifted up in prayer. That Rebecca, I'd be asking you twice in one day to pray. Oh, okay? I don't know. That's my limit. Okay. <laughs> then go, then go <laughs> to your limit and then you're of done. Okay, good. I'd, I'd be happy to. Lord, you bless us in so many ways and you bless us with the wisdom of generations of loved ones. And we thank you for the grandparents that are listening right now. And we ask you to just strengthen them. Um, and if there's awkwardness, if there's strain in the relationship, if their hearts are hurting because they want to be much closer and much more of an influence in their grandchild's life, they just don't see how. Lord, open open eyes, open hearts, and open doors that in whether little ways or big ways that they would find that path, um, the right word or just the right kind action, ways to care about and love their grandchildren, um, and just to show your love through them. We know that you turn the hearts of fathers and children back toward one another. And we pray that for the grandparents and grandkids today. But that is... All right, I'm going to get a chance to talk to Allie Beth Stuckey. She's uh, at over at The Blaze. She's a host uh, at Blaze Media, author of her new book, You're Not Enough, and that's okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Allie Beth, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, great title. Just just to let you know right up front, you had me at the title. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I I'm glad. So I, you know, one of the things that popped into my head is I would love to kind of get a biblical understanding of self-love because I think of a verse where it says, uh, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I go, well, I suppose loving yourself is a good thing, maybe because the Bible says it is and God loves us and we're lovable and we're the beloved. So uh, I know we can take it to a bad place, though, can't we? Yes. So that's actually an argument that we address specifically in the book. There is an argument that's being made um, in some sector, uh, sections of the church that says uh, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, you have to love yourself before you can love other people. But that is actually not a right understanding of what Jesus is calling us to do. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about in that directive is not the kind of affectionate love that we typically mean today. He's not talking about self-esteem. He's not talking about self-confidence. He's not talking about any kind of particular feeling you have about yourself. He's talking about that innate self-interest that all of us have, that insistence upon um, our own provision. We look to quench our own thirst. We uh, look to satisfy our own hunger. We look for our own protection and provision, no matter uh, how highly we think of ourselves that day, no matter what our feelings of ourselves are that day. And that is the kind of love that he's asking us to extend to our neighbor, not one that's based on feelings or circumstances at all, not one that's based on affection, but one that is based on a commitment to the interest of someone else in the same way that you are committed to your own interest. Ephesians 5 talks about no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. 
And that, of course, is a directive from the husband or to the husband to loving his wife the same way that he loves himself. So Jesus is assuming, God is assuming that we are born with a kind of self-interest. And so we really don't have to spend any time as Christians wondering what we think about ourselves or what our feelings are or what self-esteem, what level of self-esteem we have. That's a secular gauge of how we're doing. How we gain confidence, how we look at ourselves is through God, through Christ. Who God is doesn't change. What he thinks of us through Christ doesn't change. So as, as Christians, our confidence comes from that, taking our eyes off of what we think of us and putting our eyes on God and what he has done for us. Well, I bet that's a brilliant clarification. I already feel like I have my money's worth, and I want to run out and buy the book. Oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> all right. I want to ask you about your inspiration for all this. I mean, it started for you as a young girl when you wanted to be Britney Spears. Yes, that's true. That's what I started. I, I start off that way in the book, talking about how I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be a dancer. Of course, I don't have talent to meet that design. <laughs> And that's something that we all realize as young people at some point that some of the wild dreams that we had as kids, the capacity to be able to fulfill those dreams, we learned very early on that we're not enough for some of the things that we want. And rather than wallowing in self-pity or trying to compensate for that with some crazy level of self-confidence, we should actually realize that we are insufficient. We are not enough. God made us that way. And our strength and our purpose and our wisdom and our joy and our fulfillment comes from him, not what we can do for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about some of the myths that are just all over the, the uh, culture today and the, the myth that you are enough uh, and you determine your truth. I'd love for you to touch on those two just to get um, those started. Yes. So I argue in the book that you are enough is really the fundamental lie that we're told both sometimes in and outside of the church, particularly in women's ministries, that um, you are sufficient. You're enough for your own happiness, confidence, fulfillment, all of those things. And it comes, I think, from a well-intentioned place. People struggle with insecurity. They struggle with self-loathing. So when we hear that we're enough, it, it sounds like, you know, balm for the weary heart. It sounds like a righteous encouragement. The problem is when we are dependent on our own sufficiency or our own enoughness, and then we inevitably fail, we inevitably come up short, we inevitably realize that we are not enough for ourselves and the people around us, we end up more disappointed and more devastated than we were before. And so the beauty of the gospel is, is that we don't have to be our enoughness, but Christ actually became our sufficiency. He became our enoughness. He became our righteousness. All the good that we have um, belongs to him. The Bible says, I have no good apart from you. And so that is actually a relief that we aren't trying to prove our enoughness or prove our sufficiency to ourselves or anyone else because God has become that. His power is perfected in our weakness, not in our sufficiency. His grace is sufficient for us, not our strength. And so that is the first lie that you are enough. It ends to a dead end of disappointment as I've experienced in my own life. And through that lie, that belief that we're basically the center of our universe, basically the belief that we are our own God, that we determine our own happiness and morality and path and purpose. It also leads to this lie that you determine your own truth. A lot of people listening have probably heard these terms. Well, that's my truth, and that's your truth. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. 
And the problem is when we believe that we're enough, when we believe that essentially we are our own gods and we start determining uh, truth, when we start determining morality, we end up justifying all kinds of immorality in the name of doing what we want to do, in the name of things like autonomy or authenticity. We justify horrific things like um, abortion in the name of choice and empowerment, simply because we are willing to sacrifice anything on the altar of self-love and what I call trendy narcissism. Um, And so this is where that path leads us. It leads to not just um, spiritual problems and personal problems, but it has an impact on society at large. And so that's why I think it's so important for us to depend on God for the things that we are trying and failing to find inside of ourselves, to realize that he determines truth. We don't have that obligation and burden to carry, and that we can go to him and his word for our source of wisdom. We don't have to make up our own set of morality or our own truth. Allie Beth, you've really thought through this really well. How did uh, this become so clear to you? Well, thank you. It's something that I have been thinking about for a long time. If anyone listening to this has written a book. We know that it's a long process. Just this book has been about a two-year-long process, but even before that, it was probably half a year or a year before that that I started thinking about the subjects that I would eventually start writing the book on. So this has been about three years in the making, um, and the reason why I started to write about it and to think about it and to talk about it on my podcast is because I started getting so many messages and emails from women who listen to my podcast. We talk about theology, we talk about politics and culture, and this idea, this uh, obsession with self-love, really, it, it crosses into all of those categories. And so people just started to ask me to break it down, that, hey, you know, self-love sounds good. You are enough sounds good. You're perfect the way you are sounds good. And, hey, it makes me feel good. And, hey, a lot of these self-love gurus have helped me lose weight, achieve my goals, get my dream job, but something still isn't right. I'm still not satisfied. So why is it? That's what I keep hearing over and over again. I have been reading self-love books. I've been reading self-help books. I have been following self-empowerment influencers on Instagram for years. And why do I still hate myself? Why am I still unhappy? Why am I still so anxious? I just kept on getting those messages over and over again. And it's because of self-obsession. Self-obsession doesn't satisfy. It makes us even more unsatisfied. God didn't make us to be our own gods. God didn't make us to obsess over what we think of us because it changes every second. He created us to depend on him for our truth, for our purpose, for all the things that we're looking for inside of ourselves and just can't find. And so through my own experiences, through the experiences of other people, and following a lot of the people who propagate this madness and seeing how, unfortunately, uh, behind their Instagram profiles, you typically find a lot of um, sadness themselves and a lot of hollowness um, in their own lives. And I just realized this is a good sounding message that is leading a lot of women astray. And I hope that I can just play a small part in offering a gospel-centered truth that is going to that God will use to hopefully free a lot of women from what I think is the burden of the culture of self-love. Mm-hmm. Ali Beth Stuckey is my guest. She's host of the Blaze Media and author of her new book, uh, "You're Not Enough," and that's okay. Escaping the toxic culture of self-love. After a short break, we're going to be back with lots more.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Allie Beth Stuckey as my guest. She's written a book called uh, You're Not Enough, and that's okay. Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Uh, right before we went to break, Allie Beth, you were uh, talking about some of the myths that the uh, self-love industry has been feeding people. And really, a lot of them sound kind of nice. You're, you're enough, and, and you're perfect the way you are, and you're entitled to your dreams. And you can't love others until you love yourself. So let's keep processing through that because I find this very interesting. You've done your homework. Yes, definitely. So we just talked about the myth that you determine your own truth. The reality is is that God determines truth. We don't have to carry that responsibility. We don't have to carry that burden. And if we try, it's going to crush us and it's going to crush the people around us. So it's actually good news that we don't determine our own truth. We also talk about in the book, uh, there's five myths. Another myth is that uh, you're perfect the way you are. Now, this is something that most of us know, and maybe we wouldn't even admit that we think this about ourselves. I think most people would probably say, of course, I don't think that I'm perfect the way I am. I know that I make mistakes. The problem is we are still reading this in a lot of books that are directed toward women and a lot of, on a lot of social media pages and blogs and podcasts and self-help resources that are directed toward women that say, sure, you mess up, but essentially you're perfect the way you are. You don't need to apologize for anything. You don't need to fix yourself in any way because any flaw that you might see in yourself is really just a quirk of your personality. Personality tests have actually played a huge part in kind of normalizing what God calls sin in the name of just being quirky. And I think that that is a detriment to women's sanctification in our pursuit of holiness as Christians. We know that we're not perfect the way we are. Actually, the Bible goes further than saying that you're imperfect. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are all dead in our sin apart from Christ and that we couldn't fix ourselves up. We couldn't say, yeah, I'm kind of imperfect, but I'll just change a little bit and hope that God accepts me. Thank goodness. No, we were dead in our sin and Christ had to make us alive by grace through faith. That same passage says, not of your own doing. This is a gift. And so we are not only not perfect the way that we are, we are dead in sin. And then when we become Christians, when God makes us alive through Christ, then he also sanctifies us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And of course, we through him try to sin less and less, but we know that we're not going to achieve perfection. And again, that's good news. Jesus became our perfection in the same way that we're not enough because Jesus became our sufficiency. And as 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says, he, his grace is sufficient for us. He has also become our perfection. He has reached the standard that we couldn't reach. So all of these platitudes, they sound liberating. They sound empowering. You're enough. You're perfect the way that you are. You determine your own truth. They really put a burden on women, on people that we just can't bear because we are trying to make ourselves all the things that God has already become for us through Christ. All right, Ali Beth, the next one uh, bugs me a little bit in a good way. <laughs> it bugs me in a good way is that you're entitled to your dreams. And I, I'm always curious as to when people say that they've got dreams, I always go, well, that's cool that you have dreams, but it's nice to have wings, but where's your landing gear? How are you going to put this in action? What's your plan? Then the minute you right. ask them to tell you a plan, they kind of back off a little bit. Right, right. And that speaks to an attitude that unfortunately a lot of, I would say young people, this is probably more of a generational problem. A lot of young people have that whatever dream life we want, we are 
entitled to it. And um, this is how our life is going to turn out, really, no matter what choice we made. And I believed that myself. I believed that after I graduated from college that I would be able to do exactly what I wanted to do and get paid exactly as much as I wanted to get paid. And I think that there's no problem with having dreams, with having goals, and working to pursue them. The problem is we are entitled to those things. They aren't guaranteed. And young people, I think, have to learn to work for the sake of working hard, to work for the sake of glorifying God. Um, We have to learn to appreciate deferred gratification, which is something that unfortunately is very foreign to a lot of young people, not all, but to a lot of young people. We've been taught that we only do a job that leads to our dream career or that is our dream career and that feels good to us. Same thing with relationships. You only get in relationships that feel good to you every moment. But that is not the model that Christianity shows us, that there is joy in the sacrifice. There is joy in the deferred gratification. We can work heartily as for the Lord and not for a man, whether or not we are in our dream job. And again, that is good news. Maybe maybe your dreams will come true when you work for them. Maybe that is in God's will, but maybe it's not. And we shouldn't delay working joyfully and for the glory of God until we get the dreams that we think that we're entitled to. I love the fact that you're talking about the uh, importance of hard work. I, I just think that's a great reminder. Um, it's great to have dreams. Yes. It's great to have dreams, but it's also important to get up every day and treat what you're doing as an act of worship to God and just work hard. Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, our culture has two kinds of warped views of work. There is one view of work that is amoral. And this is more, I would say, if you're talking ideologically, more on the left-wing side of the ideological spectrum that would say there's nothing necessarily inherently good in work or inherently moral in work. And people really should just be able to do the job that they want to do. And if they don't want to work, then they should be taking taking care of. That is a more amoral view of work. But Christians know that work is not amoral. Work existed before sin entered the world, before the fall of man. Adam was tasked to take care of the earth, to name the animals. Work is good. It's part of the human spirit. The other end of the spectrum that is also wrong is idolizing work, being our entire identity, seeing it as everything we are. And the only goal in life is to reach a certain level in your career. That's also wrong. Uh, Work is not to be our idol, but it's also not to be cast aside as something that is bad. We are all called to productivity. Mm -hmm. Allie Beth, my uh, producer, Rebecca's got a question for you now. Rebecca? I do. And I've been saying, you haven't heard it, but I've been saying amen to just about everything you said, Ali. I truly think it's like we're sisters that haven't met yet. I was thinking about how some of this this toxic messaging has crept into the church. I also wonder if it's acting as kind of a foil for an opposite extreme, which is the low opinion of many women might see themselves as not being enough and feeling depressed and like they're always failing. They're always on that performance wheel. And I wondered if you'd be able to speak to how we can see our sufficiency in Christ so that we don't fall into either of those two extremes. Yes, so that's such a good point. I do think, kind of as we were talking earlier, that there are a lot of good intentions behind some of these messages that you are enough and you can't love other people until you love yourself. I think it's a genuine reaction to a lot of the legalism that we saw both in the secular world and in parts of the evangelical church 
an emphasis on moralism and legalism uh, without relationship and without a right understanding of grace and the gospel. It was, and you know, people who grew up in youth group, you hear a lot of stories, bad stories of people's experiences with purity culture when there was really no gospel preached. It was only rules-based and people they just didn't get it, or they were either abused by it, or they felt exploited by it. And so there is certainly um, a resistance to a lot of the legalism, maybe some of the fire and brimstone um, seasons of the church that people are feeling now. Now, I don't necessarily think fire and brimstone is bad, but I'm trying to characterize how a lot of people feel and felt about certain seasons of the church that were focused too much on legalism and too much just on action without relationship and without talking about the gospel and why we do what we do, why we pursue holiness. So I think this kind of self-esteem movement is a reaction to that. The problem is it was a reaction in the wrong direction. It didn't just go too far in the wrong direction, in the you know opposite swing of the pendulum. It went in the wrong direction entirely. Instead of saying, okay, you know, God thinks that you, um, no matter what you do, even after you're, after you're a Christian, God thinks that you are a dirty, bad person, and there's nothing that you can ever do that's right. And if you disobey, there's no forgiveness or grace for you, and you have to meet all of these unrealistic standards. That was wrong, but it is just as wrong to say that you're perfect. God doesn't care what you do. God doesn't care about sin. Everything that you like about yourself, God likes about you too, no matter your behavior, no matter your choices, no matter your words. God doesn't care about any of that. He's just here to tell you how awesome you are and how enough you are. That's the completely wrong direction. All you're doing is creating another kind of idol. You are still focusing on a kind of performance. You're still focusing on a kind of self-idolatry. You're still encouraging people to think of what they think of themselves rather than rightly pointing them to what God has done for them through Christ. And so our feelings about ourselves are undulating. They are tumultuous. They are changing. They're either going to go to self-loathing because we can't, we just can't be good enough. We feel like we're not adequate, or they're going to swing in the other direction to arrogance and to self-centeredness. Both sides of the pendulum are symptoms of self-obsession. What God calls us to is no form of self-obsession, but self-forgetfulness, self-sacrifice that says, I don't have to worry about what I think about me. I don't have to worry what other people think about me. I know who God is, and the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I can focus on him and what he's done for me and how he sees me as uh, now in him uh, a child of God. Ali Beth, we just have a minute or so left. When we have a me first mentality, it's not usually not going to end well, is it? No, it's not. It's not going to end well for us personally, spiritually. It's <laughs> not going to end well for society either. If you think about everyone walking around pretending like they are their own gods, determining their own definitions of truth, morality, and justice, you can see how that leads to chaos really quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty convinced. I think I'm going to buy two copies now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. You bet. Allie Bastucki has been my guest. Her book is You're Not Enough, and that's okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. That's our show for today. Thank you so much to Allie Beth Stuckey and Josh Mulvihill, the Monday Afternoon Mix, and Patrick Albanese. I hope you have enjoyed today. I hope you have a wonderful night. Rest well. God bless. And as you put your head on that pillow, know that God is working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow.
Faith Radio offers help in staying focused on what really matters. One of the things that I appreciate about Faith Radio is the constant drawing back to God, pointing out Christ, calling us to a deeper relationship. Every day I listen to this station, and it's amazing. what It raises my spirit and reminds me uh, how good God's Word is. Connecting faith to life. Thanks for listening. Together, Programming like faith this is Radio. made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.